My brave lad, he sleeps in his faded coat of blue. In a lonely grave alone lies the heart that beats so true. They will find him and know him amongst the good and true. When a robe of white is given for that faded coat of blue. No more the Welcome to War of the Rebellion, Stories of the Civil War. I'm your host, Leon, and this is a reading of the regimental history under the Maltese Cross, Antietam to Appomattox, the Loyal Uprising in Western Pennsylvania. 1861 to 1865, Campaign's 155th Pennsylvania Regiment, narrated by the rank and file. This is Episode 26, Chapter 13, Part 2. Spotsylvania, North Anna, Bethesda Church, Cold Harbor. And we are picking up right where we left off. More flanking movements, much suffering. After very severe marching, May 27th, and renewed on the 28th of May, 1864, the Fifth Corps reached and crossed the Pamunkey River about noon, where, on the south side of the stream, Ayer's Brigade and the 155th were halted, and instead of resting, entrenching tools were distributed among the already much-fatigued men, and the work of chopping down trees and building earthworks to defend the position of the Corps was immediately commenced. At this point in the campaign, from the protracted and continuous marches and fighting, there was much suffering among the troops. Hundreds of private soldiers could be seen the previous two or three days wending their way over the scorching, sandy roads with sorely blistered bare feet, unable to wear shoes, caused by wading the streams and marching over the sand and stones, and the bruises incident to the severe campaign. But little relief could be afforded the suffering on these marches, which was necessary and unavoidable. The men, though suffering, bore the hardships and fatigue, with but little murmuring or complaining. The halt on this day, and the construction of earthworks, was near Hanoverton. The base of supplies for the army was transferred, on reaching Hanoverton, to White House Landing on the peninsula, as the latter place afforded a water base for supplies, which was a great advantage, affording easier freight deliveries than by long-distance hauling from the Orange and Alexandria Railroad, from Washington, and the supply trains from Fredericksburg following the marching army. Early on the morning of the 29th, the 9th Corps moved into the interval between the 6th and the 5th Corps, and then the whole line was thrown forward in front of the Haas store. In this position the regiment remained on the 29th. Generals Early, Breckinridge, and Anderson, with their troops in line behind the Confederate breastworks, awaited attack. On the morning of the 30th of May 1864, General Griffin's division was ordered by General Warren to drive the Confederate skirmishers of General Rhodes' division from the Union front. The enemy, however, made a determined resistance and prolonged their line of defense on which Crawford's division of the Fifth Corps was brought up and with the assistance of Richardson's battery drove the enemy back. General Griffin, at this point, ordered General J. Bowman's Sweetser's brigade to advance against the enemy, with the 22nd Massachusetts deployed as skirmishers and the 4th Michigan supporting them these troops advanced, and quite brisk fighting took place, 
ending in the repulse of the Confederates. The 62nd Pennsylvania lost heavily in this action. General Humphreys, in his Virginia campaigns, says of the situation on May the 31st. The infantry corps were pressed up against the enemy as close as practicable, without assaulting. But the position was so strong, naturally, and so well entrenched, and the entrenchment so strongly held, that an assault was not attempted. The skirmish lines, however, were kept up against the enemy, and an attack threatened. June 2nd, 1864, Griffin's division was massed this day at Bethesda Church, where General Baldy Smith's newly arrived 18th Army Corps occupied the right. In the afternoon of the 2nd of June, 1864, General Lee undertook to depart from his defensive policy and assumed the offensive. He ordered General Early to attack the right flank of the Union Army. General Bartlett's brigade of the 5th Corps held the extreme right, and on the right of this brigade were skirmishers of the 9th Corps. Desultory firing by both armies was kept up all day until late in the afternoon, when the Confederates advanced on the flank of Burnside's and Bartlett's skirmishers. General Rhodes, commanding the Confederates' advance, having cleared off everything that interposed, made a desperate charge along the whole line, which was met by Griffin's division, which in time had discovered Early's movement. General Griffin formed Ayr's brigade in line on the left, Bartlett in the center, and Sweeter on the right, and moved forward under musketry and artillery fire to the attack. They had the enemy in the open now, and were ready to test their strength where everything seemed equal. These three brigades threw themselves upon Rhodes and forced him back to his defenses, both sides incurring heavy losses. Treasure Trove During the lulls in the firing, on the 2nd of June, 1864, while the 155th was occupying its breastworks, some enterprising comrades of Company F, in investigating a spot of newly disturbed earth, quite unexpectedly discovered hidden treasure of value. The breastworks extended through an orchard and typical farm of a Virginia planter at Bethesda Church along the Mechanicsville Road, about ten miles from Richmond. This treasure, consisting of silverware and silver coin, with much Confederate paper money, secreted in pitchers and cans, had been buried no doubt by the fugitive occupants of the farm, to conceal it from the Union troops advancing on Richmond. Privates Alexander Stevenson and James J. Carroll of Company F, although at the time hourly interrupted by the firing of the Confederates and the driving in of the Union skirmishers, were the lucky discoverers of this treasure trove. The find amounted to several hundred dollars in good gold and silver coin of Uncle Sam's minting, considerable silverware, also thousands of dollars in Confederate notes, payable only one year after the recognition of the independence of the Southern Confederacy, which Stevenson and Carroll and other companions, and indeed the whole of the Union Army under Meade and Grant, were then doing their very best to prevent, this discovery produced quite a sensation in the ranks. In the act of campaigning then engaging the attention of the officers of the army, no inquiry was ever instituted to have these lucky soldiers disgorge the money and valuables thus found by them and appropriated to their own use. A few hours later, Sergeant Lancaster and Privates McKenna, Hipsley and Douglas of Company E 
under the fire of the enemy on the advanced skirmish line, rescued and carried in from the front the body of Private Theophilus S. Kellen of the same company, who had been killed on Vedette Outpost just before daylight that morning. Whilst engaged in burying their fallen comrade at the foot of a peach tree just inside the breastworks, the burial party unearthed buried treasure consisting of silverware, cutlery, and Confederate paper money, but no gold or silver coins. Many were wounded in broad daylight on this day from the frequent assaults of the enemy skirmishers. Two worthy privates of Company E, Daniel Horner and John Horner brothers, received mortal wounds, and Private William Evans received a double wound, one in the face shattering his jaw and the other in the arm and wrist. Cold Harbor Assaults General Grant had intended to make a general assault on Cold Harbor on the 2nd, but it was postponed until the next day at 4.30 p.m. on the 3rd. Three corps, commanded by Hancock, Wright, and Smith, respectively, assaulted the Confederate works. The ground over which these corps moved was very much exposed, and in the charge the troops were subjected to a crossfire which occasioned severe loss. In the meantime, Burnside's Ninth Corps, assisted by a part of the Fifth Corps, also created a diversion by attacking the enemy's line near Bethesda Church, carrying the advanced line. The enemy again attempted to retake this position in the afternoon, but their attack was repulsed with considerable loss. General Ayer's brigade and the 155th took part in this attack and repulse of the enemy. Immediately after the assault on the 3rd of June at Cold Harbor, General Grant visited all the Corps commanders, and, after interviews, decided to abandon offensive operations at that point. General Grant states in his memoirs, quote, I have always regretted that a last assault at Cold Harbor was ever made. No advantage whatever was gained to compensate for the heavy loss sustained. Unquote. General Humphreys, the Chief of Staff of the Army of the Potomac, and who, as Chief of Topographical Engineers in the Peninsula Campaign under McClellan, had become thoroughly familiar with the strength of the Confederate defenses, protested to General Gant against making the charge and assaults upon the works at Cold Harbor, declaring, in his opinion, the same to be impregnable. From the disaster at Cold Harbor, the army rested in the breastworks in the various positions occupied by the Corps, with occasional skirmishing and changes of unimportant positions until June 12, 1864. Both armies were then in condition for a cessation of hostilities from the unprecedented severity of the campaign and daily engagements and skirmishes occurring since May 5th in the wilderness. General Grant had visited, as already stated, all the Corps commanders at Cold Harbor after the assault of the 3rd and had ordered General Hancock's column, after the first repulse of that desperate assault, to reform his line to renew the assault on the Confederate works but that corps had lost so many generals and field officers of high rank, in addition to the very heavy losses of enlisted men, that Hancock reported to General Grant that his decimated corps and ranks could not be made to renew the assault. A flag of truce was soon afterwards sent to General Lee by General Grant for the burial of the Union dead in front of the Confederate positions. As a result of the interviews with his corps commanders, 
General Grant thereupon decided to abandon all offensive operations at that point. The 5th and the 9th Corps, with Wilson's cavalry, covered the right of the Army of the Potomac. During the 2nd and 3rd of June, from the vicinity of Bethesda Church, the Pamunkey River, the main body of the Confederate cavalry being on Lee's left, with Fitz Hugh Lee's division on his right. On the afternoon of the 2nd, General Lee, having been reinforced, determined to take the offensive, and with Early's division, attacked and forced the Union right, and being reinforced by Rhodes' division, the latter troops succeeded in getting into the rear of the 5th Corps' skirmish line. While Generals Warren and Burnside were thus engaged on the right of the line repelling this assault, Generals Smith and Wright, with their corps, made an attack on the Confederate position at Cold Harbor, which was particularly successful, General Smith capturing upwards of 800 prisoners and the first line of the enemy's works. The occupation on the right of the position held by the 5th Corps and the 9th Corps engaged in heavy skirmishing on the 3rd prevented those two corps from participating in the intended general assault at Cold Harbor on the Confederate position. However, to create a diversion, the Ninth Corps, assisted by portions of the Fifth Corps, attacked and carried an advance line of the enemy at Bethesda Church, which in the afternoon the enemy, by a counterattack, attempted to retake, but were repulsed with considerable loss. These two corps, the Ninth and Fifth, while thus engaged, were serving the purpose on the third of preventing large portions of the Confederate forces from reinforcing General Lee's defenses and assisting in the repulse of Hancock, Wright, and Smith in their unsuccessful assault, which was attended with such heavy loss of life of officers and men. On June 7th, while the 155th and all these movements and attacks by Warren's troops, the 155th was an active participant as shown by the casualty returns. On June 7th, while the 155th was resting in the breastworks, George P. Fulton, Regimental Quartermaster Sergeant, received on requisition a full supply of shoes for the regiment, being a portion of the shoes provided for the 5th Corps by the lamented General James S. Wadsworth at his own expense, previous to the beginning of the Wilderness Campaign in anticipation of their probable need at this time. So many of the regiment being barefooted at this time, this foresight of General Wadsworth was greatly appreciated. A Retrospect of the Overland Campaign Up to the crossing of the James River by the Army of the Potomac, about forty days had elapsed since the beginning of the campaign, and never before in the history of the world had such continuous, bloody fighting taken place in any war. During that entire period, day and night, some part of the army was engaged in battle. Frequently, a single regiment on the skirmish line or on picket duty, being suddenly attacked, would hold its ground against the enemy until overpowered and cut to pieces. The troops were continuously within hearing of cannonading from some portion of the fighting zone, and they became so accustomed to the sounds that, like the ticking of a clock, they ceased to notice them. On one occasion, during this overland campaign to Richmond, the Fifth Corps, in the vicinity of Bethesda Church and Cold Harbor, had, quite unexpectedly to the Confederates, captured a position so favorable to military operations that it was almost a certainty that a desperate attempt would be made by the enemy to recover it. Quickly forming in line of battle, the Union troops, 
with quickened pulses, awaited the enemy's onslaught. The line of battle thus formed extended across a ravine or watercourse several hundred yards wide, covered by low-standing timber and underbrush that hid the troops occupying it from the view of the other parts of the line, and also concealed their position and strength from the enemy. The expected attack was not long delayed, but instead of assaulting along the entire line of the Fifth Corps, the Confederates, from some cause, perhaps in the belief that it was the weakest part of the line, concentrated their efforts in the fierce and persistent attacks against the part of the line occupying the ravine. The brave Michigan troops, composing part of the brigade in the ravine, bracing themselves against the storm of lead and hail and bursting shells hurled against them, repulsed in turn the repeated attacks. The right and left wings of the Union line, on the higher ground on each side of the ravine, stood at parade, rest in an expectant attitude, listening with breathless interest to the tumult of hell going on in the ravine, and giving but passing attention to the shells that went screeching over their heads from a distant Confederate battery. The suspense endured by the boys of the 155th, while thus waiting to be attacked amid the commotion, was worse than the actual furor of battle. The rapid and furious fighting in the ravine, charging and countercharging, after a time resulted in a scarcity of cartridges, and soon came the cry from the heroic Michiganders for ammunition. To supply this wanton ammunition wagon, drawn by six mules, was rapidly driven to the front, and drivers lashing and urging their animals to their utmost speed. The team went rushing through the parted ranks of the 155th to the front, and wheeled around, leaving the rear of the wagon towards the front. Immediately two soldiers ran to the rear of the wagon, one on each side to let down the end gate, while another mounted the wagon to push the boxes of ammunition to the expectant soldiers. While engaged in this work, a cannon shot, with a demoniac screech, passed between the soldiers at the end gate, struck the tar bucket hanging to the axle of the wagon, bespattering the soldiers with tar, passed under the wagon, out along the wagon tongue between the mules, and ricocheted over the heads of the regiment, injuring neither man nor beast. While it is quite natural to suppose that the 155th boys were glad enough not to be down in the vortex of death and destruction going on so close to their position, yet such was the patriotism and the sympathetic emotion excited within the breasts of many that had there been no restraint they would have rushed to the assistance of their comrades in the midst of the battle. Indeed, as it was, a young corporal of Company F, Samuel F. Hill, seized a box of ammunition and lugged it down the slope through the bushes in the midst of the zipping mini-balls and hurtling fragments of bursting shells, till compelled by exhaustion to relinquish his burden to stronger but not more willing hands. Successful Strategic Operations on the 9th of June, 1864, General Meade directed Major Dunn, Chief Engineer of the Army of the Potomac, to select and entrench a line in the rear of the position at Cold Harbor, to be held while the Army was withdrawing and moving to the south of the James River. The entrenchments so ordered were immediately constructed and were finished on the morning of the 11th of June. On the 10th, General Warren's Corps was directed to move and advanced to a position, keeping entirely out of the observation of the enemy, which the Corps did successfully. General Warren, 
being advised confidentially of the part of his corps would take in the march to the James, was directed to move as soon as it was dark on the evening of the 12th. General B.F. Butler, on the 9th of June, sent General Gilmore and General Cotts from City Point, the cavalry of the army of the James, on an expedition against Petersburg to capture the city and also to destroy the railroad bridge across the Appomattox. The expedition consisted of 4,000 infantry and 1,500 cavalry. General Gilmore says the pontoon bridge over the Appomattox River was not muffled, as was promised it should be, and that the crossing of Cotts' cavalry could be heard for miles, and no doubt put the enemy on his guard. These movements under Generals Gilmore and Cotts were wholly unsuccessful. General Beauregard, commanding the forts and entrenchments of Confederates at Petersburg, telegraphed to Richmond that, having sent all his troops to reinforce General Lee, he would be obliged to abandon the lines at Bermuda Hundred, or those of Petersburg, unless his own troops, with others, to man the fortifications of Petersburg, were at once sent to him by General Lee. Grant's Army Crosses the James River The quietness and secrecy with which the orders of Grant and Meade for crossing of the James River and change of base of the Army of the Potomac were carried out by Generals Warren, Hancock, and Humphreys. Chief of Staff exhibited the highest order of military skill on the part of those commanders. It effectually deceived General Lee, who disregarded the repeated requests and appeals of Beauregard, and ignored dispatches from other Confederates that the columns of the Army of the Potomac were being rapidly transported across the James to capture Petersburg. General E.P. Alexander, General Lee's chief of artillery at Gettysburg in subsequent campaigns, in a very recently published history, departs from the usual style of Confederate writers by venturing to criticize and to question the infallibility of Lee's generalship in this campaign. In his ably written work, General Alexander declares that General Lee was very much at fault in refusing to believe the warnings and notices from Beauregard and others that Grant's entire army was across the James en route to Petersburg and in scouting the information as unreliable and incredible from the reports obtained by him through his officers and scouts on duty in front of Richmond. To General Humphreys, the chief of staff of General Meade, too much credit cannot be given for the successful carrying out of the project or plan to transfer bodily an army of 150,000 men, infantry, cavalry, and artillery, and their immense wagon trains, across the James, successfully eluding the unusually expert and vigilant enemy, from whose immediate front this army had withdrawn. Not a man of that great command was killed or captured by the enemy in this great movement over the James. So carefully had every point been guarded and every advantage taken to keep from view the movements that it was, in fact, all accomplished without discovery by the enemy. In preparing to carry out the project made by General Humphreys for transfer of the Union Army to the south side of the James, General Warren was directed to move his corps out the Long Bridge Road, not only far enough to cover the crossing of the Chickahominy by the Army, but also to hold the bridge over White Oak Swamp, it was expected that such a movement by General Warren would deceive General Lee by giving him the impression that it was an advance upon Richmond. The movement evidently made the desired impression upon General Lee, and to a greater extent than was contemplated, as his subsequent movements and actions show. General E.P. Alexander 
states that Lee was uncertain what the Army of the Potomac was doing until the afternoon of the 17th of June, when the entire Army of the Potomac was south of the James River with all its cavalry and trains. 155th Transfer to Sweetser's Brigade On the 16th of June, the 155th by steam ferry crossed to the south side of the James River at Wilcox Landing. On the 15th of June, previous to crossing the James River, the regiment was, by the following circular, or order, transferred from the 1st Brigade of the 2nd Division of the 5th Corps, General Ayers Commanding, to the 2nd Brigade of the 1st Division of the same Corps, General Griffin Commanding. Headquarters, 5th Army Corps, June 15, 1864. The 91st Pennsylvania Volunteers, Colonel Gregory, and the 155th Pennsylvania Volunteers, Major Ewing, are relieved from duty with the 2nd Division, General Ayers, and will report to Brigadier General Griffin, commanding the 1st Division. By command, Major General G.K. Warren, Fred T. Locke, Assistant Adjutant General. This order transferred the 155th Regiment to the brigade commanded by Colonel J. Bowen Sweetser, composed of the following regiments, 62nd, 91st, and 155th Pennsylvania Volunteers and the 21st Pennsylvania Cavalry dismounted. This was a most gratifying order to the 155th because of the popularity of General Sweetser and of the men of the 62nd Pennsylvania Volunteers, fellow Western Pennsylvanians with whom they were hereafter to be brigaded. Chapter 14 Petersburg Campaign, Weldon Railroad is where we will pick up next week when we continue with Under the Maltese Cross. I've got a lot to talk about in this episode, so let's get down to my notes. There it is again in the very beginning of the episode. These dudes not having to carry shovels yet. I'm so jealous. And also the shoe problem. That's not a modern military problem anymore, at least in the United States, because someone in your platoon should be carrying shoe goo, and that is S-H-O-O goo, so you can make repairs that are long-lasting on the fly. However, the list of reasons on why it can give you cancer is long, so make sure you use it in a well-ventilated area and wear gloves while you're doing it. It's really great stuff, though, and it really binds. So once you put it on, like something's not coming off. I guess back to the, what I'm reading about at hand. I know sometimes I go on like tangents and stuff, so you'll just have to deal with it. This was a really great episode to read. I'm sad we didn't get a closer look at the regiment that it was doing kind of its day to day, but you know, it's a more of a larger scope of the action that's taking place. So I'll include some videos on my website under the post for this episode about each engagement. If you already know about this kind of stuff in these battles, obviously you you can just skip it, look at the pictures and like go on with your life. But you know, if you got some spare time guys, just put it on in the background and listen to it because it's got a few pictures, some of the people who were mentioned and some other stuff. So come check it out at my website, rebellionstories.com. And I wonder if it was kind of because they were so busy fighting and moving, they didn't have a lot of time to like write things down. So, we'll see. And speaking of them bringing up General Humphreys, 
I should read his book to you guys sometime. I think I should put that on the list. All right, let's talk about treasure troves. That's what I'm talking about. I am something of a crow myself. I like to collect shiny things. So whenever we're talking about anything shiny whatsoever, I'm like, hey, yeah, what's up? So this is like my favorite chapter of the book so far. In fact, this would have been my dream had I been in the Marine Corps and went to Afghanistan and found gold or something or silver. Like, that's dope. Uh, very jealous. And also, when you engage in open rebellion against the United States of America and you bury your valuables like that, you kind of deserve to have your stuff stolen. I'm sorry. I don't care. Those Those soldiers are all the way down there. Because your fire eaters couldn't wait to start a civil war. Sounds like another brand of fire eaters in the country right now. Cough, cough, Republicans. And now you're reaping what you sowed. Innocent or not. I mean, all those slaves were innocent, right? So, war sucks. Don't start it. So, I really enjoyed that part, reading about all the boys finding treasure. Not so that they found some while they are burying a comrade. We will honor... Some of those vets. We got Memorial Day coming up. Oh, right. Let's talk about Cold Harbor. Brutal one-sided fight. I think of all the army commanders by the end of the war, only Union General Thomas, George Thomas, hadn't committed a charge like that where a ton of people died for no reason. Although if someone knows that he did, let me know. But I can't think of one off the top of my head. Talking about the fight in the ravine with the Michiganders. That sounded nuts. Probably to listen to and watch, right? can't really see what's happening, but you can only hear your boys in blue fighting valiantly to hold the line. Like, gosh darn, must have been nuts. And that cannon ball skipping under the wagon and over the heads of the regiment while they were unloading ammo. That is crazy. I love those little bits of stories about what the men see. That's kind of the book I really want. And there's a few like that, and I'm going to read them probably for my Patreon. I've already got two picked out, so I just... Need to start it. <laughs> so much work. All right. Oh, and General Alexander, who is a Confederate general. Let's talk about something I keep seeing in these Civil War works from this kind of golden era of Civil War writings. And that's Union veterans and some Confederate veterans calling out not just like General Lee's actions, but also the actions of the Confederacy as a whole. And I really enjoy that. Like, you can try and rewrite history now that the war is over, but you can't rewrite what we experienced, nor the truth of what the war was about. And that's because there's like modern day attempts right now to try and cover up how horrible our country's past has been and labeling it like, oh, it's critical race theory and it's evil. It's like, no, that's what we learned from. That's what makes us bigger and stronger and a better country as linking arms with our fellow Americans and being like, we're not going to do it again. Kind of like how the Germans do it, right? The making sure they never do it again. And each child learns about the Holocaust where you cross that with Japan and there are Japanese citizens who come to Pearl Harbor and they're like, we're the ones who bombed this. What? Like, that's crazy. You know, and there's a big mean point still to this day between China and Japan over Japan not teaching its citizens the atrocities that they committed in China. 
And I feel like that's really important for any nation to grow up. And so, like, for people who are anti-CRT, like, I'm sorry, but the United States Marine Corps teaches that in boot camp. And that's so that Marines know not to make the same mistakes of our forefathers, to not commit genocide in the Philippines like we did, or in the Banana Wars. In fact, the commandants of the Marine Corps often put War as a Racket by two-time Medal of Honor winner, General Smedley Butler. And it's literally about, it's not very long, maybe I'll read it, about the, like, the Nazi-level evil America was committing during the Banana Wars throughout Central and South America, all at the behest of just business interests. So, I mean, I could go on, like, climate change, think people not being it's real, but then you're in the military, and it's like all we're preparing about as our number one threat to national security, greater than Russia or terrorism. And it's like all we're focused on. And then you get out and people are like, no, that's fake news. You're like, no, it's real. Everyone's preparing for it. You should prepare for it too. Um, so anyway, it's really great to see direct sources from the time period kind of like call out modern lies. And so every time I find it, like I'm really going to bring it to the forefront because I think it's really important. Like, could you imagine if we went back in time to these probable Republican writers and what they would say about the Confederate flag-waving Republicans carrying the Confederate flag into the Capitol building and smearing poop on the walls. Like, do you see how different these are? Like, how far of a gap they are between these two different types, the same party over such a time period? It's crazy. Sorry, that day just makes my blood boil as a veteran. Anyway, especially since both parties are trying to get us to fight each other so we don't realize we should be fighting the rich instead. Anyway. Also, I'm sad that the regiment was moved out of their old brigade. I mean, I guess it's okay because the heirs almost got him killed. Right? In the two, two episodes ago. So, I guess it's alright. But, alright. I've got some news... I guess we'll move on to like the news portion if you're still listening to this. What's if I haven't last lost half of my 40 listeners? Uh, we'll talk about um, my upcoming trip. I think I I wanted to do like an update where I wanted to post some pictures, but some things got in the way where I was just like taken up every day after work. I just had to go somewhere and do stuff, but I'm not having that next this next week. I'm going to be really busy this weekend, but early this next week, I'm going to start working on other projects for the podcast. So, I am officially going to plug my Patreon. There's nothing in it yet, but there will be by the end of the month. And I have 50 slots open at $1 a month. And that's it. Once that one those $1 slots are up, so if you get that, it is $1 a month, $12 a year. It'll be a steal as I build this because this is it, guys. Like, I'm really building this as my future. So if you hop on now, you'll get all of the benefits of my Patreon, of all the stuff that I'm going to do for only $1 a month. And every person after that, after those 50 slots fill up, is going to have to pay more. <laughs> I haven't decided on which yet. But the... First thing that I'm going to be reading is the company history for the 155th Regiment, 
that I talked about a couple episodes ago. I will do that in full and release it in a few episodes. And then after that, I'm going to be reading a book called The Young Volunteer, which is, mm, I would say, probably about 50 or 60% true when reading it. I think a lot of it's been made up. Uh, but, you know, we'll go with it. It's a pretty entertaining novel. I'll bet a little bit racist at times. Or the point in history that we're talking about is people didn't realize quite how racist they were when we look back on it through a modern lens. And not, well, not even a modern lens, right? Because there's a lot of abolitionists that knew the difference between what was racist and what was not. So anyway, that's my official plug for the Patreon. If you get on now, by the end of the month, I will have the first episode. That's what I'm pushing myself for. So, uh, and then after that, when I come back from my trip, I'll start uploading to the YouTube channel as well. But that's really going to be poetry and music and one book, which is going to be uh, the one episode that I already have on my website, which is Army Life by Billings, Hardtack and Coffee. Fantastic book, but I really want to record that. I know there's already recordings that exist, but it's pretty entertaining and I really enjoy it. So I wanted to do it myself. With that, I will go ahead and talk to you guys next week. Enjoy your weekend and have a fantastic one. And we're going to start on, I mean, we're kind of nearing the end, right? Not of this book. This book is huge. So we're not even halfway through. But, you know, we're getting close to the end of the Civil War. And then after that, we're going to do some individual stories that are written down within the book itself. And then we'll go through things like company and casualty lists and stuff like that. And I'm going to read all of that in its totality, because as veterans, they deserve that. So, I'll see you guys next week. Have a great one, and take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. No more the bugle calls the weary one. Rest, noble spirit, in thy grave alone. They will find you and know you amongst the good and true. When a robe of white is given for that faded coat of blue. He cried, give me water. And just one little crumb And my mother, she will bless you Through all the years to come Go tell my sweet sister So gentle, good and true That I'll meet her up in heaven Or in my faded coat of blue No more the bugle Calls the weary one Rest in thy grave alone They will find you and know you Amongst the good and true When a robe of white is given for That faded coat of blue